I'm Ann Dark. I'm Tracy Stormy. And I'm Kathy Knight. And together we are... It Was a Dark and Stormy Book Club. A podcast for mystery lovers. Welcome! If you enjoy our show, please consider contributing to the Dark and Stormy Patreon. By becoming a patron, you will help us create better and quality content. There are also benefits to becoming a patron, such as exclusive content and Dark and Stormy merchandise. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash darkandstormybc. Check our website for the link. We appreciate any and all contributions. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the 86th episode of It Was a Dark and Stormy Book Club. Today we have an interview from the beautiful state of Hawaii with Robert McCall. But first, we're going to tell you about our experience at Halloween this year. We were invited to attend a book festival for paranormal, spooky, steampunk, urban uh, fantasy, and mystery book festival. We had a blast. It was two days in Ellicott City, Maryland. That's a spooky little town just by itself. There were lots of great authors there. Most of them were in the spooky or urban fantasy or what have you category, but a few of them wrote mysteries and we met some new people there. We will highlighting some of their books coming up soon. <laughs> we went to a fascinating talk about the witch history in the state of it, Maryland. And it was fascinating. It was really good. And Kathy and I went to a haunted house uh, and off to chicken out. <laughs> I didn't chicken out. It's just not my thing. So I didn't go. Besides, I had to walk up a hill. My feet were tired. We would like to thank Rachel Rawlings, uh, who organizes Hallowreed, for inviting us. You can go to hallowreed.com to see the authors that were there and the books. Check it out. Well, now we're going to have our interview with the author, Robert McCaw. Robert B. McCall, a seasoned attorney and veteran of many headline-grabbing cases, blends his decades-old passion for Hawaiian history with a lifelong enthusiasm for crime fiction to create the compelling protagonist Chief Detective Koakani, a former U.S. Army officer and judicial clerk at the U.S. Supreme Court. McCall's firsthand military experience, legal expertise, and immersion in all things Hawaiian lend the characters in these richly layered thrillers, unparalleled authenticity. An avid photographer and part-time resident of the Big Island since the 1990s, he and his wife split their time between New York and Hawaii. There are two books in the Koakani series currently, but I believe he said he was working on another. And the book we will be talking about is Off the Grid. Kill away a smoldering lava fields, a unique place to bury the bodies. A scrap of cloth fluttering in the wind leads Hilo Police Chief Detective Koakani to the tortured remains of an unfortunate soul. Left to burn in the path of an advancing lava flow, for Koa, it's the second gruesome homicide 
homicide of the day, and he soon discovers the murders are linked. These grisly crimes on Hawaii's Big Island could rewrite history or cost Chief Detective Hoakani his career. Welcome, Robert. We have Robert McCall on the program today. He wrote the book Off the Grid, which takes place in lovely Hawaii. Welcome, Robert. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. With Hawaii being the most recent state to join the U.S. in 1959, and having been a native kingdom before that, is the practice of law substantially different there from the rest of the U.S.? Actually, a very interesting question. Basically, the practice of law, criminal law and civil law, is similar to that in most other states, with one large exception. There's a set of separate organizations, laws, and procedures in Hawaii for native Hawaiians. It's run largely through a governmental office called the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. And just to give you one example, it controls large swaths of land and creates housing for native Hawaiians at nominal costs. And it does a bunch of other things as well, largely focused on native Hawaiian community. But with that exception, and obviously with the same kind of variation that you see from state to state, practice of law is very much the same out there as it is here. That's very good that the Native Hawaiians are recognized and taken into account. Yes. As you probably know, there's a sovereignty movement in Hawaii that stems from the fact that the United States expropriated the islands in 1893. That sovereignty movement has some political effect in Hawaii, but it's pretty firmly one of the states at this point. There's some sort of analogy that you could make between the Native Hawaiian rules and those applicable to Indian reservations, although there's no formal treaty with Hawaii. Well, you talk about the Hawaiian past and history, and you live part-time there, so I assume that you're pretty well-versed in Hawaiian history, but did you have to do a whole lot of research into the local customs, and is there anything in your research that stands out? I did a lot of research on on Hawaiian history, language, customs. I used the facilities of the Bishop Museum in Honolulu, which has uh, just extraordinary archives. I used the libraries at the University of Hawaii, numerous textbooks, everything from how to make lays to Hawaiian herbal medicine to feathers to some of the other artifacts. I did a lot of research in Hawaiian language. I spent hours chatting with kama'aina. That's the Hawaiian word for those who are native born and grew up in Hawaii. And there's a whole slew of things that stand out in my memory. One is, just to start with, is the extraordinary local hospitality. I met lots of people who were very, very generous with their time and with their knowledge of history, knowledge of customs, ranging from Ellsworth Kahoe, who was the 13th of 17 children who grew up on Kauai, to people like Pono and Corky, who run large Hawaiian ranches. One of the things that also stood out to me and I found very interesting was a whole set of ancient Hawaiian environmental practices. We're today worrying about climate change and lots of very wasteful practices that we have come to live with. Ancient Hawaiians controlled fishing, for example, so that you could catch ahi or tuna only half the year and you caught another species during the other half of the year. It was a natural preservation process and regulation. They had huge fish ponds 
ponds in which they grew fish with intricate gates that allowed little tiny fish to come in and kept the big fish as they grew up in the internal ponds. I'm something of a stargazer. I've always been interested in astronomy. And the ancient Hawaiian navigation practices were just extraordinary. I mean, we're talking about people who had no written language. They didn't have navigation texts in the same way that we have. But they had chants, and their chants related how they interacted with the stars and how they used many natural signs, wave patterns, bird migration patterns, to navigate. I found that very fascinating. There was actually a two-way trade between Hawaii and some southern Polynesian islands. We're talking about crossing 2,000 miles of ocean in double-hulled canoes driven by the wind. Another interesting issue was the Hawaiian burial practices. The bones of kings, or of their ali'i, as they called them, were considered to be sacred and sources of power. And so when an ali'i died, his or her relatives guarded bones because they were thought to contain mana, or the power of the former king. And those bones were hidden away in burial caves, and some trusted retainer was responsible for making sure that they were secured and safe. Some of the ancient Hawaiian family practices are interesting. They basically, in the old days, didn't recognize marriage. Children were born in communities unless they were the product of a mating between a commoner and royalty. They were accepted into the community and cared for by the community. Lots of interesting Hawaiian stories are told in petroglyphs, in rock carvings, where they scratch or dug pictures into rocks. And then there's the whole interesting topic of mammals in Hawaii. The only indigenous mammal was a bat. All of the other mammals on the Hawaiian Islands were brought there by people, either the early Polynesians who brought largely pigs who became wild, actually are a pest on the island today, and then early missionaries who brought cattle. And at one time, cattle roamed wild on the island before they were rounded up, and King Kamehameha gave large tracts of land to some of the ranches that still exist on Hawaii. One of the things that very few people know is that some of the largest cattle ranches in the United States are on the island of Hawaii. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. Those are a few of the topics that stand out in my mind. Are there real conclaves, quote unquote, off the grid in Hawaii, or is that all fiction? It's an interesting question, and I'd quarrel just a little bit with the question, because most of my experience with people off the grid, and they are real in Hawaii, were individual people who lived off the grid. There are some communities, but it's generally more individuals than whole communities. And you have to understand that with solar power and water wells, some of those people who live off the grid are quite affluent. Others are not. And I've met and dealt with a bunch of off-the-gridders, as you might call them. Indeed, the victims in off-the-grid are modeled upon and extrapolated from real people whom I met when my wife and I commissioned a silk painting and were invited to this largely off-the-grid house, which has some resemblance with a good deal of literary license to the home that we visited. Yes, it's a real phenomenon there. As Koakani was investigating the case, the CIA and the DIA interference in the case was disturbing. Not surprising, but disturbing. If they had succeeded in taking over the case, would COA have had any recourse? The CIA, I think, would not have been too much of a problem. Remember that the CIA has no legal authority to interfere in domestic matters. I'm not saying it never has. I'm just saying it doesn't have any legal authority to do that. Similarly, it would be pretty far out of the Defense Intelligence Agency's jurisdiction 
jurisdiction to interfere with local law enforcement. The real problem for COA in the book is that those two agencies, and particularly the DIA, was pressuring the chief of police to curtail the investigation, and he was succumbing to the pressure. He was trying to, really at the behest of the DIA, stop the investigation. As you know, if you've read the book, Coe is pretty persistent and had some considerable skills at manipulating the system so that he outsmarted them in the end. Yes, he did. What are your plans for him in the future? Is he going to get married? It's really interesting. I did a book talk recently, and there was a publisher who was in the audience. At the question and answer period, he said, I hope you're not going to kill off Galani, who is Koa's girlfriend, who's actually plays an important role in several of the stories. And I assure you, Galani is around to stay. The next big story is Fire and Vengeance, which Ocean View will publish in July 2020. And it's a story with many of the same characters, although like my first book, and Off the Grid, they're completely independent stories. You don't have to read them in any particular order. This one, you're going to find out a lot more about Poa Kane's brother, who is his younger brother, who was convicted of multiple crimes at the beginning of the story, is incarcerated and plays a significant role in the pretty wild plot involving a volcanic eruption under an elementary school. That's the next big Okane story. So it sounds like he's going to be ongoing as long as we can keep him going. Keep him going. <laughs> For an author, it's a question of what do the readers want? So far, both with Death of a Messenger and this book, Off the Grid, I've gotten really quite wonderful reviews and wonderful responses from readers. As an author, you hope that continues. The real question is finding the kinds of stories and the kind of background. If you've read Off the Grid, you know that Hawaii is almost a character in the book. Yes, um, it is. When I'm reading other authors' fiction, I love the background story, whether it's somebody like Jane Harbour, who writes about the outback in Australia, or Greg Isles, who writes about Mississippi and the various racial and other issues in Mississippi, or some of the authors who write stories about the English countryside. I love that background. It was really fun for me to create and use and explain the Hawaiian background, and I hope readers enjoy it the same way that I enjoy reading about other places. It's almost like getting to go on a trip. It is, and I have to say, my husband's biggest bucket list wishes is to go to Hawaii. Having read this book, it really puts that urge to go visit there. <laughs> Not just Hawaii as a character, the lava fields themselves was character in its own right. That's true. What's happened in Hawaii since I wrote Off the Grid makes the lava fields even more interesting. As you may know, in May 2018, the Kilauea crater began to empty and the lava began to flow down in the rift zone and did a huge amount of damage. I think it destroyed something like 700 homes and created a lot of new land. So there's lots of new opportunities to use the violence of Hawaii's geography as a character in the story. It was interesting about that community that the volcano destroyed overnight. Royal Garden. I have visited Royal Gardens. It's a very strange place because you see these, literally these sections 
of dirt road or gravel road that go from one bank of lava to another bank of lava. It makes you wonder what was ever there before. Or there's other places where there's a stop sign just sticks out of this black rock. And there are people who are still living there, kind of refusing to give up the ghost on their community? Actually, there's an interesting story there. It actually took a fairly long time, almost a decade, for the volcano to destroy all of the homes there. But for several years, there was one house that was still standing. The owner of the house, I think his name was Jack, rented out nights at the house. If you were well-heeled and could fly in by helicopter from one of the resorts, you could spend the night in this totally isolated lava field. Wow. Well, there's always some way to make a buck, right? (laughs) (laughs) You were talking about your husband and you visiting Hawaii. One of the things that's really interesting about Hawaii is that there are really multiple Hawaii's. The Big Island, which is where Off the Grid is set, takes up more geographical space than all the other islands combined. But it's very rural. There are really two large communities, Pona on the west side of the island and Hilo on the east side of the island. But the bulk of the population is on Oahu. That's where Honolulu is. And then there's the little tiny island of Lanai. There's the so-called Garden Island of Blai. And then there's Molokai. Each one of them is quite different, sort of different character, different geography. Kauai is about 5 million years old. Big Island is still growing. There's really quite a diversity. If you only had to pick one to recommend, because this might be a once in a lifetime trip, which would you recommend? I guess if I were going to just visit one island, it would be either Maui or the Big Island. But I'm not a big nightlife person. If you wanted Hawaiian nightlife, you'd go to Oahu and go to Honolulu. But for me, that's much like other big cities. And what's really unique are places like Maui, where you can go up to the top of Haleakala, which is its volcano, or the Big Island, where you can go up on Mauna Kea or Mauna Loa. When my wife first landed on Hawaii, she looked out over the lava fields, this jagged, brownish lava field with almost no vegetation. It's been there for almost a 100 years because the land is so dry that nothing grows. And she turns to me and she says, it looks like seized chocolate. You know, when you get a <laughs> yeah. few drops of water into hot chocolate, it seizes up. That's a lot what the air area around Kiholi Airport looks like when you first arrive on the west side of the Big Island. Getting back to the book, the political backdrop in Off the Grid could have been ripped from the headlines. Was there any event that sparked the idea in the book? Well, I have to be careful here to avoid a spoiler because the political backdrop in Off the Grid was in fact ripped from actual headlines. Oh, really? The event in question happened more than a decade ago and was surrounded by by a real-life mystery with international ramifications as to why it happened, who caused it, what was the background for it, almost caused a, well, actually did cause an international incident. And I was fascinated by it at the time. I read everything I could find domestically and internationally, and no one came up with a satisfactory explanation for what actually happened or why. So I took this actual event, described it in detail in the book accurately from press stories. I created my own explanation for it. Maybe that's what's really happened. Maybe it's not. But stranger things have happened in life. Well, it could vary. 
very possibly have happened that way. Would not surprise me. I'll put it to you that way. (laughs) (laughs) The book was very, very well written. Thank you. It was excellent. Now, you told us about Fire and Vengeance. Do you have any new books or events coming up that you'd like our listeners to know about? Well, in addition to Fire and Vengeance, which will be published by Ocean View in July 2020, in December 2020, Ocean View is also going to publish a reissue, the first book called Death of a Messenger. And I'm at work on two other books at the moment. They're not sufficiently advanced so that I want to reveal any of plots, but I love writing. I love writing about Hawaii. I'm sure you haven't heard the end of uh, Connie. Now, when Fire and Vengeance is put out, would you send us an arc so we can read it and maybe have you back on the show? I would love to do that. In fact, I think the arc is going to be available sometime late next month, and so I will make sure you get one. Oh, wonderful. We will look forward to talking to you about that. This was an excellent book. I can't wait to read the next installment. Thank you very much. Well, the only thing I can say that was a little bit difficult was reading the Hawaiian name. Yes, the pronunciation. Yeah, we, we kind of had to just let that skim over. It's interesting because one of the questions I've been asked a number of times, I'm obviously not Hawaiian, is how I can get the language and how can I use the language in the book. One of the things I've done, I've tried to be accurate and I've actually hired a Hawaiian editor who goes over the Hawaiian for me and makes sure that it's right and often offers suggestions questions as to individual words or phrases that I use. So I've tried to be very accurate in terms of my use of the language because I have a lot of respect for the, the Hawaiians and the language when you hear it read or recited is quite beautiful. Can you tell us your website so that our listeners can find you? Yes, it's www.robertbmacaw.com. Robert B as in brother. B as in boy, Macaw? Yes. Great. Robert, we thank you for joining us today. Today, we will pass along your contact information for our listeners. We'll put that in our show notes so they can find you and all about Koa Kani and his wonderful life in Hawaii. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Robert. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I really enjoyed this book. I thought it was very well done, and the island of Hawaii was a great place to set a mystery, especially in the lava flows. That was really different. I thought it was excellent. I really enjoyed the backdrop of Hawaii as well. I think that Robert did an excellent job also of creating really nuanced characters that you really want to cheer for and look forward to following their lives in the next book in the series. It was a good mystery, but it was also a good action story. There was a lot going on in this book. There were chases, raids, and all kinds of... Oh, and of course you had the CIA... The FBI. The FBI and the DIA getting their... Two cents in. Those alphabet soup of government agencies had to stick their nose in to the investigation and cause trouble for Koakane. Who was just trying to do his job. And I think, if anything, this book just cemented the fact that we would love to go to Hawaii. (laughs) 
Yes, definitely. Oh, and of course, Robert had to insert a lot of Hawaiian history, and it was very interesting to find out more about. Especially about the settlements that went up, the artists' settlements mm-hmm. and the off-the-grid people that yeah. actually had their own little enclave. Oh, I also like the history of the burials on the island as well. But there was a lot of political wrongdoing. And it and- ties into an actual event that is a true mystery to this day. This is Robert's supposed outcome for that. It's a book we all recommend. It was very well written. Absolutely. We did an excellent job. If you're interested in a good mystery and you want to know more about the state of Hawaii, then this is a book that you will enjoy very much. You will. That brings us to the end of that. <laughs> and that's about, about I hope you are enjoying our newsletter that just came out. And if you do not receive our newsletter, go to our website at itwasadarkandstormybookclub.com. There you can sign up for our newsletter and receive wonderful information about upcoming books, highlights, and our upcoming episodes. You can also get our email address where you can send us your short story submissions. We are going to add a short story to the newsletter. It will come out once a month. We'll start next January and continue each month with a new short story. So there will be 12 opportunities every year to get your creative juices flowing, put your work in front of a great audience. And we've started to receive some and they're very entertaining. Just send them in when you you write them. (laughs) And another thing is that it doesn't have to be a story that is originally written. We will take stories that are previously published because they will most likely be new to our audience. Just make sure they're between 1,500 and 2,500 words. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. We hope you enjoyed it. You'll join us for our next episode and each episode. And remember, life would be boring without a little mystery. Bye! Bye.